70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Здравствуйте. Меня зовут Ольга. Мы из города Кунгур, Пермский край. Очень рады отправить вам видео. Итак, KBS исполняется 70. Hello, we are Alexandra and Olga. I send greetings to all of you on behalf of my brother Alexander as well, because he has difficulty speaking due to his condition. KBS World Radio is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. 70 years is not a short time. I think the years added more value to KBS World Radio just like good wine. I first started to tune into KBS World Radio in the late 90s and have been enjoying the channel ever since. Now I can't imagine my life without KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday, the 31st of October, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang President Yoon Suk-yeol delivered his budget speech in front of the National Assembly, where he called on the need for economic and societal reforms to generate sustainable growth. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Semaglutide has been touted as a miracle weight loss drug by celebrities and high-profile figures in Western countries. We find out more for our in-depth today. And coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we meet the co-directors of a powerful documentary about a Korean-American man who was wrongfully convicted for murder and sentenced to life in prison in 1974. Let's begin Career 24. President Yoon Suk-yeol has called on a partisan parliament to approve a slim budget, blaming the hostile global economic situation, as the annual increase in next year's budget has been kept to a near 20-year low of 2.8%. The president said 23 trillion won, or around 17 billion US dollars, in restructured funds will be redirected to bolster basic state functions such as national defence, education, and health as well as to protect the socially vulnerable and secure future growth momentum. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung, In hello. Hello, Chang-ho. So President Yun called for the passage of his government's 2024 budget of 657 trillion won, or some 487 billion US dollars, in a budget speech at the National Assembly on Tuesday, it's the smallest budget increase on the on year since 2005, as the opposition has repeatedly been urging the government for expanded fiscal spending. So can you tell us what were some of the reasons that the president gave for the belt tightening? 
The president began his speech by laying out what he saw as the economic landscape facing the country. He said global trade is expected to increase by less than 1% this year amid high interest rates and high inflation. He attributed worsening external conditions facing the export-driven domestic economy to armed conflicts in Europe and the Middle East. Therefore, Yoon said his immediate focus is placed on preventing negative global factors from reaching the public. Let's listen to what he said. While thoroughly managing macroeconomic risks with extra caution, the government is focusing on economic recovery and stabilizing the public's livelihoods. As we closely monitor the economic security of the nation 24-7, we are checking on our case-specific contingency measures to ensure swift responses are ready at all times. The president said the government has conducted a zero-based review of all financial projects in a bid to avoid passing down untenable debt to future generations. He said 23 trillion won, around 17 billion U.S. dollars in restructured funds, will be redirected to bolster national defense, education and health, as well as to protect the socially vulnerable. And how has the opposition reacted to the budget speech? The Democratic Party said the president showed no sense of crisis regarding the current economic conditions and didn't demonstrate any sympathy for the difficulty in the people's lives or offer up any solutions. DP spokesperson Yoon Young-dok also criticized the president for making long-winded excuses for cutting the research and development budget that the opposition classified as essential, while adding that the government's budget contained random cuts without any clear vision. Before the budget speech, there was also a much-anticipated meeting between the president and the DP chief, Lee Jae-myung. Can you tell us about the meeting? Sure. The two made conversation for the first time since Yoon's inauguration at a customary meeting of political leaders before the budget speech. They've only had brief contact in public events since Yoon took office last May. Before the meeting was closed off to the press, we saw them shaking hands as the president said it was nice to see him after a long time and Lee just smiled. Speaking to reporters after Yoon's speech, he said he asked for extensive change in state policies or the budget while government ministries take a more hands-on approach, stressing great difficulty faced in terms of public livelihoods and the economy. Meanwhile, rival parties agreed last week to refrain from picketing and heckling opponents inside the National Assembly chamber and during standing committee meetings. Uh, Did the DP follow through on that agreement? Partly because DP lawmakers picketed outside the plenary chamber holding signs urging the administration to prioritise public livelihoods as Yun entered parliament. The DP claimed that picketing outside the chamber is not in violation. Mm. Let's shift to other news now. The Vigilant Defence air drills scrambling more than 130 warplanes are underway over the Korean Peninsula between South Korea and the US. Can you tell us more? Sure. According to the South Korean Air Force, the drills, which began on Monday and will run through Friday, will provide intensive training for actual situations with simulations of 24-hour wartime operations. The South Korean Air Force is sorting fifth-generation F-35s, of which it currently operates 40 with plans to purchase 25 more. The U.S. is sending F-35, F-16 and A-10 fighters, along with other attack aircraft from both bases in Japan and the mainland, to conduct joint drills with South Korean forces that include live-fire air-to-surface drills, among other emergency exercises. 
Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war, the United States has voiced opposition to the supply of arms to Hamas for its terrorist activities in the wake of a report that the Palestinian militant group has been using North Korean weapons in its war against Israel. Can you explain? Yes, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller was asked to comment on Monday on an assertion made by Israeli ambassador to South Korea Akiva Tor last week. Speaking to Voice of America last Friday, the Israeli ambassador reiterated that the militant group is using weapons manufactured in North Korea. Miller said that Hamas is a brutal terrorist organization and the U.S. opposes the provision of anything that can be used to carry out such terrorist activities. And finally, the government has announced on Monday, the South Korean government, I should say, uh, that it will increase physical activity in schools and help improve students' eating habits after after statistics showed that obesity rose among students during the pandemic. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to the Education Ministry, the obesity rate among students jumped 3.9 percentage points from 15.1% in pre-pandemic 2019 to 19% two years later. The number of students with deficient strength for that age also rose 4.4 percentage points from 12.2% in 2019 to 16.6% last year. The ministry said it plans to nearly double physical activity hours for first and second graders in elementary schools starting next year from the current 80 to 144 hours, while also separating physical education from music and art in the curriculum. From the 2025 academic year, middle schools will increase sports club activities by 30%, while high schools will encourage students to faithfully complete mandatory physical education programs. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. When Elon Musk, the US billionaire, was asked last year on Twitter before he took it over and renamed it X how he had gotten in shape, he said fasting and Wigovi. He was just one example from a long list of stars and social media influencers who were touting the influence of this supposed FDA-approved miracle weight loss drug. People in Korea have also been clamoring for it as well, but so far the bariatrics drug has not been approved for use in the country. The questions that remain are, is it really safe and is it really the solution to obesity? To discuss this, we have joining us on the line now Dr. Andres Acosta from the Mayo Clinic in the US. He has also conducted research on uh, semaglutide, the drug in Wigovi. Dr. Acosta, hello and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak tonight. I'm delighted to be with you. Right, we should start for any listeners who might not know that Wigovi is essentially the brand name of semaglutide and that there are other brands out there such as Ozempic and uh, Ribelisus. But before we get into that, we wanted to first ask who would need such medication? How do you define obesity? And if someone is overweight, and what stage do we know if someone needs to lose weight for health reasons? Yeah, that's a great question, is who really qualifies or who is the person who needs these medications? Well, the first we need to define obesity. And obesity is defined as when the excess of body fat starts producing health problems. So we usually like to jump immediately and say obesity is defined by 
a classification such as body mass index, in which um, for uh, white Americans, it will be a BMI greater than 30 or above. And for Latinos or Asians, it will be a BMI 27 or above. But there could be people who have a BMI lower than that, those cutoffs uh, that might still have obesity-related uh, problems or fat or weight-related uh, uh, problems such as diabetes or hypertension, and they will also qualify to have obesity. Uh, and just to qualify, just to explain a little bit more, body mass index or BMI is the way that we tend to classify obesity at a population level, but there are other ways to study and define obesity. Uh, also, what about obesity among children as well? This is an issue that's been of a concern in Korea recently, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. The number of children uh, who have been diagnosed as obese uh, has been rising. Uh, what about children? Yeah, for children, we also use the body mass index, which uh, is the uh, weight of a patient divided by the height in squares. And for children, use also the body mass index, but we use the 95th percentile for the uh, child age and gender. And if they're above the 95th percentile on growth charts, we uh, define them as having obesity. And if we are defined as uh, being obese, does that mean we need to lose weight? Correct. So having obesity, which is a disease, um, we, uh, the best recommendation and treatment choice is weight loss, getting to a healthy weight, reducing the amount of adipose tissue uh, and the form of fat, and that way we improve the overall health. Okay, and before semaglutide, what sort of medications were available and how effective were they? What medications were available around the world uh, to try and help tackle obesity? Yeah, we have had many medications that have come and go through the years. Uh, in the United States, we have right now five FDA-approved medications. The one that has been used for the longest time is Phentermine, which is a sympathomimetic medication, and usually results in about 8 to 9% weight loss in one year. Then we have a medication that we combine Phentermine with Topiramate, which uh, the brand name in the United States is called Qsymia, Q-S-Y-M-I-A. And this medication of pentamine topiramate combined results in around 12% total body weight loss. We also have a medication called naltrexone bupropion. Uh, the uh, brand name in the United States is Contrave. And this medication usually results in 8 to 9% total body weight loss. We have a medication called Orlistat, which is an appetite, uh, 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 sorry, prevents the absorption of fat from our gut. This medication results in about 7 to 8% weight loss. And um, the last medication that we have is Liraglutide, which the brand name in the United States is Saxenda, and usually also results in 7 to 8% total body weight loss. So just to summarize, these five medications that are now approved for over a, a decade in the United States, and they all give you a range between 6 and 12% total body weight loss mm. for, uh, in patients with obesity. Okay. And would these medications be used for uh, overweight people as well? 
Correct. So we use these medications for people who have a BMI greater than 30, that's defined as obesity, or patients who are overweight with a BMI greater than 27 who have an obesity-related condition such as diabetes, hypertension, or hyperlipidemia. Okay, so tell us then about semaglutide. I understand that it was originally a drug developed for people with diabetes. Yeah, so semaglutide is also like liraglutide, a GLP-1 or a glucagon-like peptide, GLP-1, receptor agonist. So this medication is basically replacing a hormone that we have in our body that comes from our gut and goes to our brain and tell our brain to continue to feel full. So the first type of these medications, we actually got it approved in 2004. And now, last year, we got approved semaglutide in the United States in the form of YGOBI for the management of obesity and was previously in 2018 approved for the management of diabetes in the form of Ocempic. So uh, we are very excited about this medication because the outcomes of these medications tell us that patients are going to lose between 14 and 16% of total body weight loss in 62 weeks. Right, so it's more effective than previous medications uh, for weight loss, you're saying? Correct. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit better than the previous medications. We're giving us that range are closer to the 10%. I understand that you were involved in studies that confirmed that the drug is indeed effective for weight loss. Correct. Uh, I have done many of these studies uh, in which we study this medication in clinical trials as well as in real world, how they actually work on the clinic. And what we have found in our studies is that, unfortunately, not everyone responds to the medication. You know, uh, there is people, like you mentioned on the introduction, like Elon Musk, who has lost significant amount of weight with his medication, but not everyone does. So in our studies, we have found and developed a test to identify who will be the best responders, not only to this medication, like Wygovi, but also to previous medications approved for obesity and for weight loss. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but for those uh, that it does work with, there are uh, great results so far, it seems. Doctor, it almost sounds too good to be true. What about the side effects uh, and how serious are they, especially concerning the fact that this was not a drug initially developed for weight loss, but for helping people with diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, uh, no drug is 100% safe. Um, the, uh, this uh, line of medications or this family of medications called GLP-1s, they tend to be associated with gastrointestinal problems or side effects. The most common one is nausea and vomiting, and also patients may have experienced diarrhea or constipation. So these are common side effects. It happens in, in close to 80% of the patients, according to the trials. Uh, and there's some other more rare side effects that don't happen that often, but it's important that you discuss with your doctors before you start these medications. Could there be any more uh, long-term side effects that perhaps we don't yet know about? Because the drug has only been around for a few years. You know, that's a great question. 
this medication, while Gobi has only approved for a few years, this type of medications or these family of medications, we have almost 20 years worth of experience. So far, we haven't seen any long-term complication with these medications, but it's something always that the regulatory agents are looking for, and particular things that we need to be concerned that might produce long-term damage. However, with that said, we're also seeing some data from long-term trials that are showing us some very nice benefits, particularly reducing the cardiovascular risk, reducing the risk of dying from heart disease or from stroke, and also improvements on the kidney function. So there's a lot of benefits on these medications that are beyond just weight loss. We see benefits on diabetes, benefits on heart disease, benefits on kidney function. So if you are going to be a good responder for this medication, it's, it's worth considering. Right, so you would very much then tout the success of this uh, drug. What would you say to those who want to lose weight and who might look to uh, semaglutide as the answer? Is this the answer? Well, it might be. Um, as we know from the studies, both clinical trials as well as our real-world experience with these medications, about half of the patients are going to lose uh, 15% of total body weight loss or more. Unfortunately, the other half might not lose that much weight. So with the exception of the test that we have developed, there is very few other ways to know who is going to respond or not. So if you're considering trying this, it might be worth trying. And if you're not seeing a result in the next, in the first three months, you're likely not going to see a result in the long term. So the, for that reason, the regulatory agencies have told us that try this medication for the first few months. If don't respond, stop. But if those who are responding are losing significant amount of weight, it's worth starting these medications, continue and staying on for long term. But ultimately, isn't it better to lose the weight naturally through a better diet and exercise rather than uh, using medication, especially because uh, at the moment this drug is quite expensive, in the, especially in the U.S. I understand a month's supply of the drug is about $1,000, although it is more affordable in other countries, I believe. Uh, you're right. The best way or the initial way to try to lose weight is changing our, uh, what we eat, our nutrition, and try to increase our physical activity. Unfortunately, many patients try this approach. They have tried a diet and exercise program, and they're not successful. And there's many reasons why people might be not successful when they try to lose weight. But one of the most common ones is because when we try to lose weight, we just feel extremely hungry. And we're trying to diet and eat less, and it's very difficult to stick to the diet program because of our lack of sensation of fullness or an increased hunger. And those are mechanisms that our body is fighting us back. I want to lose weight, but my body is fighting me back. And for that reason is where these medications become so successful. And it's because they help us fight back these adaptations that our body is not allowing us to lose the weight that we want and, and achieve a healthy weight. Hmm. I see. So uh, for... Uh, people who can lose weight the traditional way, that is perhaps uh, the best way. Uh, but for those who are struggling, perhaps they can look to uh, this sort of uh, medication, uh, you're saying. 
Correct. And that's the way that we should manage obesity in a multidisciplinary way in which our patients should start with the more simple things like a lifestyle intervention. And if they're not successful, we need to have these tools like we have for any other disease to help them manage their, their, and achieve their goals. For example, if we have a patient with type 2 diabetes, we will recommend that they start a low-carbohydrate diet. But if that's not successful to bring down the hemoglobin A1C and the fasting mm. glucose, okay. we introduce medications. So obesity should be the same thing. People should try with a lifestyle intervention. If they're not successful, the doctor and the uh, care team should consider starting these medications. And I hope the cost of them come down so more people can afford them. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Dr. Andres Acosta from the Mayo Clinic. Thank you once again for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 32.56 points, or 1.41% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,277.99. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also fell, losing 21.02 points, or 2.78%, to close at 736.10. On the foreign exchange, the local currency gained 0.41 against the U.S. dollar, to close the day at 1,350.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have with us now contributor Diane Yu, who has joined us in the studio. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang Okay, what do you have for us first today? The police have decided not to file additional charges against Asian Games gold medalist swimmer Hwang Sonu, who was suspected of causing a hit-and-run accident. The Jincheon police station in North Chungcheong province announced on Tuesday that it judged that there was insufficient evidence to prove that the 20-year-old swimmer fled despite being aware of the fact that he had caused a traffic accident, and added that the police only charged him with violating the Act on Special Cases Concerning Traffic Accidents and sent him to trial without the Attention. Okay, so this is actually an incident that took place a couple of months back in August. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through what happened exactly? Yes, Huang has been under police investigation for allegedly hitting a passerby in his 80s, crossing the road with his side view mirror and leaving the scene without taking any action. He was going 150 kilometers per hour on a road with a speed limit of 60 kilometers per hour. At the time of the accident, Huang was driving in the first lane of a two lane road when he saw a person jaywalking and turned his steering wheel to the opposite side. The police explained that the vehicle black box did not show the actual collision and it did not have a voice recording function so it could not be confirmed whether the sound of the impact was loud enough for Huang to realize that there had been an accident. In addition, considering that the damage to the side view mirror was minor, it was highly likely that Huang was not aware of the accident. Right, but then Huang actually came back to the scene of the incident and that was one of the reasons why the police 
didn't end up charging him with causing injury by hit and run, right? That's correct. Huang immediately returned to the scene after seeing that his car's side view mirror was damaged. However, it's reported that Huang went on his way again without taking any action, such as checking the condition of the passerby. Regarding this, Huang said that he didn't think the passerby was hurt as he was standing on the side of the road and talking to people around him, and added that he only realized that there was an accident after going back to the scene and seeing the police there. It was reported that the passerby suffered a minor injury to his arm and reached an amicable agreement with Huang. Right, so he's avoided the much greater charge of a hit and run, Mm -hmm. uh, but he still faces charges of causing uh, some sort of accident, and especially the fact that he was driving 150 kilometres an hour on a Mm -hmm. 60 road. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly, excessively fast, even if it is a quiet countryside road. So yes, uh, Mm. we'll see uh, what uh, happens with that uh, in the future trial as well. Mm -hmm. Let's continue on to the second story of the day now. What do you have for us? With a rapidly decreasing number of children in South Korea, we've witnessed thousands of schools closing down because simply there are not enough students. However, one school, which was on the verge of closing, has managed to turn things around. Located in Shinan County, South Chala Province, Hyksan School's Hongdo Branch is a small island school that opened in 1949 and has maintained the island village for 74 years. However, it was in danger of closing as it has only three sixth graders and no new students next year. For your information, in the Korean education system, elementary school school covers grades first through six. Okay, so this is a school on a small island called Hongdo, located 115 kilometers from the southwest coast of Mokpo Port. Mm -hmm. So it's understandable that they would struggle to find students considering its location. Yeah. But it was on the verge of shutting down. Then how has the school turned things around? It all started with the county's announcement of their plans to support families who want to move there. According to Shinan County on Monday, the local government announced that the parents of students who enroll or transfer to Hongdo Branch School will be provided with accommodation and jobs with a 3.2 million won per month salary. That's about 2,400 US dollars, which is a considerable figure in a Korean rural area. And the school said that since the announcement, there has been a series of phone inquiries from parents Parents. The number of views of the YouTube video containing the details of the aforementioned subsidies exceeded 1.51 million, and parents of over 80 households from all over the country, including Tongye City in Kangwon Province, called to inquire about school transfers. Right, so the local government is essentially paying for families to relocate to the island right. to help keep the school running, but also attract new residents. They're giving free housing, Mm -hmm. uh, free tuition, I'm assuming, and even jobs with a decent pay. That does sound like a pretty good deal. Can anyone apply for these subsidies? Well, the county first plans to recruit four households to enroll and transfer to Hongdo Branch School on a pilot basis. Households with several elementary school students, especially those with lower grade students, will be prioritized. The county also plans to prepare four houses with good residential conditions for enrolling and transferring families. And once the housing is set, the county is going to invite 12 households to Hongdo to view the school and facilities and check on their adaptability. Right, so the families haven't relocated yet, but there seems to be high interest. It Mm -hmm. looks like this program will work then. I'm sure there'll be questions about how sustainable this plan is, but I think for now, the island and the school can just uh, celebrate the fact that the school can perhaps stay open, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure they'll figure the rest out later. Yes.
Okay, let's uh, move on to our final story. What else has been trending? The wait is over as the winners of this year's Ballon d'Or is out. And Argentine professional footballer Lionel Messi has won the award on Tuesday, Korean time. The Ballon d'Or, or the Golden Ball, is a prestigious football award annually given to the best player of the previous season. This is Messi's eighth time winning the award in his career. But many in Korea are reading about how one South Korean player managed to make the award's top 30 list. Well, congratulations to Messi, of course. He's definitely a living legend. Mm -hmm. But who is that Korean player? That would be defender Kim Min-jae, who plays for Bundesliga club Bayern Munich. Kim was ranked 22nd place on the list. What's special is that he's the one and only Asian football player to feature on this year's top 30 rankings. And also the first ever Asian defender on the list. Previously, Japan's Hidetoshi Nakata and Iraq's Yunus Mahmoud were selected as candidates, but their positions were midfielder and attacker, respectively. Only three other Korean players have been previously selected as Ballon d'Or candidates before. They are Seo in 2002, Park Ji-sung in 2005, and Son Heung-min from 2019 to 22. Yes, it's no surprise that Kim is on the Ballon d'Or list if we think about all of his recent accomplishments. Yeah, no one would deny the validity of Kim being placed in the top 30. Looking back on his performances, all you can do is nod and give him a round of applause. (laughs) In his first season in Italy, the centre-back helped Napoli win their first Serie A title in 33 years. Kim not only had solid defence skills, but he also has accurate forward passing and offensive talent as well. With a rare combination of speed and skills, Kim quickly established himself as the rock of the league's strongest defence and won was named the best defender of the 2022-23 to campaign. Yes, and his talent and performance at Napoli saw him garner huge interest from the biggest clubs in Europe during the summer as well. Yeah, so he joined Bayern Munich this summer. The club paid 50 million euros to recruit him. This is the highest transfer fee for an Asian player. And it doesn't stop there. His annual salary is 12 million euros, which is also the highest among Asian players. So seeing how he's doing well in Germany, it's expected that we'll we'll be able to see him higher in the next year's rankings. Sure, and along with possibly Song Min again, who's having another fantastic season so far, and possibly even Yi Gang In, yeah. whose career at PSG is starting to lift off mm-hmm. too. So that'll be interesting to see next year. Okay, we're going to wrap it up there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Korean-American Cho Su Lee was wrongly convicted for the murder of gang leader Ip Yi Tak in San Francisco. He was sentenced to life in prison where he spent a decade before his exoneration that was made possible after investigative journalism by K.W. Lee. His reporting led to a coalition of support for the imprisoned E from Asian Americans who were appalled by the injustice that unfolded in the Sacramento courtroom from ineffective counsel to false testimony by police inspectors as well. This story has now been captured in a documentary called Free Chosu Lee by directors Julie Ha and Eugene E, who have joined us now in the studio to talk more about it for this week's Touch Base in Seoul. Hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, great to be here. Thank you for having us. 
Yes. First off, can you first introduce yourselves to our listeners as well? I understand, Miss Ha, you are a journalist, not a filmmaker by trade, and this was your first uh, feature documentary. That's right. Um, I am a print journalist by profession. Um, I was a newspaper reporter um, for several years, and then I was the editor of a Korean American magazine called Coriam Journal. Um, and actually, I was inspired to become a journalist um, by K.W. Lee, the journalist featured in our film. Right. Okay. So you have that connection as well. So you must have known about this story uh, already. I did. I learned about it when I was 18 years old. That's when I met K.W. Lee. And I was really shocked to learn um, at that age that our American criminal justice system could actually put an innocent man in prison. So it was actually quite a um, mind-blowing discovery at that young age. Yeah. And Ms. D, can you introduce yourself for our listeners as well? I believe you are uh, more involved in film, right? Yes. Uh, my name is Eugene Yi. Hello. And um, yes, I have a background in film, primarily focusing on um, film and video editing. Uh, but I also have a background in print journalism as well. And it's through that print journalism work uh, that I met Julie um, at Coriam Journal, um, as well as uh, K.W. Lee, through whom I learned about the case as well. OK, so you knew about the case as well before you collaborated on this film? Yes, I did. But it was... Uh, it was shocking that, that, that I had not learned about this, that so many of us had not learned about this in school at some point. Um, because, I mean, you think about it, it's this historic moment where Asian Americans come together and free an innocent man from death row, from prison. And yet, this was not something that we learned about growing up. And, and there's just so much about that that has to do with being a minority in America, not having our stories as respected or as valued as other people's stories. So um, we, we just, I think both for both of us, like a big motivation was the fact that this case was not well known and to make sure that future generations would know about the story and this history. Right. So for me, as a British Korean, I didn't know about this story either. But I'm guessing even within the Asian American community, the Korean American community in the US, it wasn't that well known then. That's right. Back in the 70s and early 80s, when this case was actually happening and a movement had formed, it was actually a well-known case. Um, we were talking like our even our even our parents um, knew about the case because it was in the news in Korean newspapers, um, but it became forgotten in the decades since. Um, and actually, you know, the seeds to make this film were planted at Chul Lee's funeral. Um, I had attended the funeral um, to write an obituary for my magazine, um, but also to check on um, the journalist K.W. Lee, my mentor, um, because I knew he was in tremendous pain after Chelsea Lee had died unexpectedly. Um, and it was really in the funeral space where I felt this overwhelming heaviness. And um, that heaviness sort of stayed with me um, for many months. And that's why, you know, when Eugene and I, um, who had collaborated together as journalists, were talking about making a film together, um, I spoke of this heaviness to him. And we sort of just knew um, especially as second-generation Korean-Americans, we couldn't allow this history to stay buried. And it was almost our generational responsibility to tell it. Can you tell us a bit more about the story itself uh, for our listeners? How did this injustice come about? Sure. So um, Chelsu Lee was arrested for a Chinatown gangland murder in 1973. The police were looking for a Chinese suspect, but arrested, arrested him instead largely because of the testimony of three white tourists. And through that, he was he was convicted. And uh, it just sort of goes to show you a lot of what was happening at the time. It was a violent time in Chinatown. 
um, there was violence, but the police were not in a position to really properly engage with the community in a way with the kind of sensitivity necessary so that this sort of incident and this sort of travesty wouldn't happen. Mm. So it's a, a shocking injustice. Uh, you wanted to shed light on it again, I'm assuming, uh, as you said, after uh, Charles Soli's death. What was it like putting the film together? Uh, was it a difficult film to get, put together? From what I saw of the trailer, it was a lot of uh, historical archive footage that was used. It was a difficult film to put together. Um, it, <laughs> it, it took us six years total to, to, to from start to finish for wow. the film. Mm. Um, but... Uh, I'll speak on the archive that you mentioned. I mean, you know, the process is usually you might go to a news archive or or or, or, an, archi or an archival house to, to try and find that footage. But um, again, the reality is that I think for our communities, because our stories are not as valued all the time, you know, sometimes you might go and look and there's not much there. Hmm. And so for us, you know, much of the archive had to do, like had to come from further digging and ultimately came from the community. Um, because we have a background as print journalists, because of our relationship with KW Lee, um, that just opened so many doors. Mm. And what we found was that many people had actually retained and kept archive personally from that era. So KW Lee had, you know, he's a pack rat, an inveterate pack rat. So he shared much material with us and he opened a lot of doors. And uh, before long, it was to our very pleasant surprise uh, that we saw that there would be enough material out there in the community to make a film. What was it like to make the film also without the subject himself alive? You said it was sparked by the fact that uh, you were attending his funeral, but yeah. uh, I'm guessing because of that, there must have been uh, a voice that was missing. From oh, the definitely. Um, and I think we had um, a, a deep insecurity um, as we were working on the film um, about being able to do justice to Chul Lee's voice since we never had a, a chance to interview him ourselves. Um, but, you know, a couple of decisions, I think, really um, made us um, feel like all the pieces fell into place. Um, the first thing was we made the decision to use narration in our film. And um, that freed us up to utilize um, materials like his memoirs that he had written, um, his speeches, um, other interviews, um, some of the recorded phone conversations he had with the journalist K.W. Lee, who became a father figure to him. And so then we were able to script um, what Chelsea says in our film, him telling his own story. And really, we felt like we could get um, in depth with his feelings and his thoughts. Um, and then, of course, the second challenge, though, was then finding the right narrator, um, somebody who wouldn't take us out of the film, but would actually be believable as Chelsea Lee. Um, and so actually we were very fortunate um, to have discovered um, a young man named Sebastian Yoon. Um, he was actually the discovery of our producer, Sue Kim. Um, and he is formerly incarcerated. He's Korean American. Um, he had gone into prison starting at age 16 in New York. Um, and uh, he is currently um, a criminal reform activist. Um, and he, he um, when we reached out to him to work with us, he immediately wanted to um, tell Chosu Lee's story. Mm. He told us that he could actually personally identify with his life. Um, and, uh, you know, he had joined a gang when he was in his, his teen years. Um, and so he could really, I think, relate to Chosu feeling lonely and abandoned and even bullied as a child. Um, and then he also could 
um, obviously relate to what it's like to be incarcerated um, and that feeling of loneliness and depression and dehumanization every day. Um, and so uh, Sebastian actually collaborated with us on the script um, and he gave us tremendous insight about um, what that Chelsea Lee wasn't just facing prison violence, for example, mm. um, but it was it was those uh, mental demons, you know, um, as I mentioned, the dehumanization, the loneliness. And so um, we were able to script new scenes based on his insights. Um, and also we just feel like his um, his narration is really like you can feel the lived experience. Mm. Um, and he just brings so much like empathy, we think, to the voice of Chelsea Lee. It sounds like it was a very uh, fruitful collaboration. It's been a beautiful collaboration, yeah. And uh, we feel so lucky that, that he joined our, our team. And it sounds, just from this conversation alone, that although Charles Sully, he is the name on the... Uh, on that he's the subject of the film, uh, K.W. Lee plays a huge part in the story as well, then. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, him as well? Uh, yeah, and Julie, please feel free to, to jump in at any time. But um, K.W. Lee was one of the first uh, journalists of Asian descent in the continental United States. Um, he had... a a long career in the South, actually, at first um, covering the Jim Crow South and, you know, issues of poverty and class and race um, there with a very sensitive eye for what he likes to refer to as the, the, the worm's eye point of view, the, the, the perspective of the people who are downtrodden and are, 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 are facing that kind of oppression. Um, and then he came to California. Uh, and, and, and that was this was actually, you know, we were talking about this today. This was actually one of the first times that he worked on a story or the first time he worked on a story about a Korean subject. And uh, he sort of he talks about how he had to learn about the Asian community in California because he hadn't had much experience at that point. Mm. But by that point, he was already a well-established journalist, like award winning uh, and was actually recruited to come to Sacramento to be their chief in investigative reporter at the Sacramento Union. Yeah, and I just wanted to add that, um, you know, K.W. Lee, um, when he came across um, Chosu Lee's case, um, his editor at first told him, you know, no, you can't work on this. You're my chief investigative reporter. This crime happened in San Francisco. This is a Sacramento paper. Mm. And they sort of depended on K.W. Lee to write um, exposés every day. Um, and so um, he made a bargain with his city editor, and he just said, please let me cover this and investigate it on my own time. So he spent six months of his own time um, investigating this and finding just, you know, this unbelievable case of somebody who had been railroaded in our American criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, it was uh, he saw judicial bias and he saw um, witnesses who described initially um, a killer who was, you know, between 5'6 and 5'10, and Chosili is actually quite short, you know. At most, you can say he's, you know, between 5'3 and 5'4. Mm. Um, and so just on that alone, you would think um, he would have just been dismissed as a sub suspect, um, but he wasn't. And so K.W. Lee could not believe this. Um, he wrote a series of stories um, about this case, and it's really those stories that um, you could say triggered the landmark Asian American movement that formed after it was read um, by um, Korean Americans and Asian Americans. And these articles were actually photocopied and passed around. Um, and people not only could see that the evidence clearly showed Chosu wasn't guilty of this crime, mm. but it also showed the, the human side of Chosu Lee's story, you know, and his 
um, being a child of the Korean War, immigrating to this country at age 12, um, and just being bullied at school, um, you know, tossed around within um, the uh, American um, carceral system, you know. Right. Yeah, and, and so he um, he wrote those stories, and really, you know, you can credit him for helping to start this movement. Well, it's already been incredible to hear about the story. We're quickly running out of time. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. But I understand uh, there have been screenings in the U.S. since uh, last year as well. What has the reaction been like so far? I mean, it's been extraordinary. It's been beyond, I think, what we could have imagined. I mean, uh, like we sort of we imagined this as a community film, just sort of something to make sure that this history is preserved. But the the way that the reception has gone to premiere at Sundance and to have the film screen the way it has 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 been uh, I mean it's been life changing really I mean people have connected with the story of Chelsu in a way that that sort of like brings this issue very close to them they 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 see him not only sort of for I mean they they recognize his flaws of course because it's a very complicated story mm. and that needs to and and I just want to mention that but they also connect with his resilience his his strength, his charisma, and they see how he was able to inspire this movement and um, are summarily inspired as well. And and it's been wonderful to see. I mean, I think it's important to add that among the reactions we were most concerned about were the people who were involved in this case who came to his aid. And we've been told by 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 them that, you know, the, the film has brought some sense of closure and a sense that um, they can speak of this movement in a way with pride that they had not necessarily been able to do before. And that's mm. just been the most extraordinary thing, truly. And you're also both here in Korea for the film release in Korea as well. What do you hope audiences take away from the, spe- from the film, especially here in Korea? Well, um, I think we feel like um, this story, even though it took place 40 years ago, is still relevant today. Um, we think one of the lessons is who are the Chosulis in society today? Um, and we encourage, um, especially Korean audiences, to look at the people who might feel marginalized in Korean society. Um, for example, um, single moms or adoptees or um, North Korean defectors, um, people who are incarcerated, um, new immigrants to this country. And, you know, maybe take inspiration from the people who built this movement that, you know, came to the aid of this stranger, of this, you know, poor Korean immigrant street kid um, who actually was no angel, um, but uh, he had a criminal record. But they still looked at him and said, you know what, you're the victim of this injustice. Um, You are somebody who's alone. And we will um, give you attention, love and care um, and do what is just and righteous. Um, and I think that's just something um, all of us um, could take re- inspiration from today and try to see personalize that lesson in your own life. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you both here in the studio today to talk about the film. And I think uh, many of our listeners will be rushing to uh, check out the film and the story as well. Uh, so thank you for shedding light on this story as well. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. We've been talking to Eugene E and Julie Ha, the co-directors of Free Chosuli. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is documentary director Lee Jin-young. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Thank you.
We've come to our final segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what do you have for us first today? It is Kim Dussel's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald. It says that there is only one independent film festival in Korea with a competition showcase. It's called the Seoul Independent Film Festival. And this year, it will be held for nine days from November 30th in Apkujang, Seoul. The reason we are talking about the festival right now is because it has announced which film was chosen as the opening film this year. Okay, so the Seoul Independent Film Festival. Yes. Interesting. So walk us through the film that was chosen. It's called The Cenozoic, the Cenozoic Life, and it is directed by Im Jong-hwan. Uh, like most independent movies, it has a pretty interesting and different premise. <laughs> okay. It was quite interesting to me because when I was reading the article, like it, it wrote down the premise and it almost sounded like two people were gossiping to each other the way it was written. <laughs> <laughs> so it follows the main character named Kim Minju. She goes to Lithuania because her husband is missing, so she's trying to find him. There she stays with a college friend who lives in the country, but they have a falling out because of the friend's husband's strange behavior. Mm. And then she meets two men who claim to be detectives belonging to an international detective organization. So it seems like there are three or four different storylines taking place all at once. Okay, yes. So it does sound like there's a lot <laughs> going on. But it's quite interesting, uh, the setting, Lithuania. It's not often that a director picks a country like Lithuania as the location uh, of their films, right? Well, I did a little digging. The Cenozoic Life is Im's second full-length feature. The first was a movie called The King of the Border. Interestingly enough, that movie premiered at the Seoul Independent Film Festival back in 2017. Okay. So, yeah, it seems like he has a connection or enjoys using Eastern European countries as locations. The first film was set in Poland and Ukraine. Okay, interesting. Well, that's the uh, opening film. Do we have any other information about the festival itself? Uh, not yet. Uh, this was the first announcement that was made. Everything else will be revealed on November 8th, including the list of films that will be screened, which foreign guests have been invited, and the other events that will take place during the festival. Yeah, so keep an eye out for that information if you live in Korea and are interested in going to the festival. Okay, so perhaps we'll be talking about it again when more information is released on November yes. 8th. Okay, let's continue. Uh, what's the next article you found in tomorrow's newspapers? That would be John Dunbar's article in the Foreign Community section of the Korea Times. It's about an American artist named Aaron Crossrow. He is based in Seoul, and the reason I chose the article is because I like the theme of his paintings. I also recognized a picture of one of his works that is included in the article. I saw it online before, and he is very talented. Mm, you said you like the theme of his painting. Yes. And what type of things does he paint? Well, he goes to Seoul's Itaewon and Ojiro areas. He finds local businesses like marts or vendors with stalls. And he paints what it looks like on a regular day. It doesn't sound amazing, but these <laughs> places and people have their own character. It kind of shows the old Seoul, which I enjoyed when I came to Korea for the first time. Sadly, these areas are disappearing. Right, so it's essentially a snapshot of an everyday life yes. situation here in Seoul, preserving uh, that moment as exactly. such. That sounds interesting. Uh, what does this process look like? Uh, perhaps from finding the places he wants to, to paint to completing the piece. Well, first he goes to the businesses that, and uses his limited Korean to explain <laughs> what he does and ask if he can paint the store. If the employee or owner agrees, he then takes a photo of something regular that is happening with his phone. 
He goes home, creates these amazing oil paintings. Uh, the artist keeps the original, but makes copies and gives them to the employees. Mm. He then posts his complete uh, pieces online, and he also displays them in art exhibitions from time to time. Yeah, but it's amazing how he is able to paint people on canvas so well. Yeah, if you would like to find out more about him, then check out tomorrow's article. Right, and you can find pictures yes. as well, right, of his paintings. Fantastic. Uh, that's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. The people I love by Chong Ho Sung. 나는 그늘이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 그늘을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 한 그루 나무의 그늘이 된 사람을 사랑한다. I do not love people who have no shadows. I do not love people who do not love shadows. I love people who have become the shade beneath a tree. 햇빛도 그늘이 있어야 맑고 눈이 부시다. 나무 그늘에 앉아 나뭇잎 사이로 반짝이는 햇살을 바라보면 세상은 그 얼마나 아름다운가 Sunlight too needs shade to shine bright and dazzle the eyes Sitting in the shade of a tree and watching the sunlight sparkling between the leaves How beautiful the world is then 눈물이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 눈물을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 한 방울 눈물이 된 사람을 사랑한다. I do not love people who have no tears. I do not love people who do not love tears. I love people who have become one teardrop. 기쁨도 눈물이 없으면 기쁨이 아니다. 사랑도 눈물 없는 사랑이 어디 있는가? 나무 그늘에 앉아 다른 사람의 눈물을 닦아주는 사람의 모습은 그 얼마나 고요한 아름다움인가. Joy too is no joy without tears. And is there ever love without tears? The sight of someone sitting in the shade of a tree, wiping away another's tears. What 
serene beauty that is. You listen to Korean poet Jung Ho Sung's Nega Sarang Hanun Saram, The People I Love, read by Anjay Jae Woo and translated by Brother Anthony of Tae's and Sun Jae. KBS World Radio brings the beauty of Korean poetry to the world. KBS World Radio.